Hey y'all, it's your favorite host, and I wanted to just pop in here to say, uh, if you're enjoying the show uh, and you'd like to give us some support, the best way to do that is through Patreon. Uh, I've launched the Patreon with a couple of tiers. There's a $3 tier, which gives you access to the Discord, and you come hang out with uh, me and the other friends inside of that, uh, and just kind of talk the show, talk a bunch of different nerd stuff. And then there is a, another tier, an $8 tier, uh, where you can get early access to episodes ad-free. Um, you will also get free access to all uh, micro-RPGs that I create in the future. Yeah, so again, uh, thank you so much for listening to the show. Um, if you'd like to give additional support, that's one way to do it. Another great way to do it is just, you know, go on to whatever platform you're listening to and rate the podcast, subscribe, uh, follow, leave a review if you can. Um, those things really help gain visibility for the show, and it is always greatly appreciated. Link is in the description. Thank you so much, and back to the episode. Welcome to the Secret Nerd Podcast, where we think everyone should play tabletop RPGs and give you some reasons why. For today's episode, um, we have with us today featured a guest who is both the president of Paleo Gaming and the lead designer for their new TTRPG that will be out soon. Um, if you'd go, like to go ahead and introduce yourself. Sure. My name is Dan Prusko buxbaum uh, I am an avid gamer. I've been playing uh, tabletop role-playing games since I was about 12 years old. I'm now 34, so that's a lot of... Uh, <laughs> lot of road behind me yeah and uh paleo gaming is a company that i started eight years ago we started actually in the video game space more we started as an esports competitive esports company but because of my long love of tabletop games i started exploring what it would take to actually publish a game which is a lot obviously but things things that i felt i could learn and i could do and so uh We've been working on Omega Horizon for three years now, and we just had a successful Kickstarter campaign. Awesome. And uh, yeah, so we're about a year away from fully publishing the core rulebook. Very cool. Well, we'll definitely get into all of that, but um, where I'd like to always start is just kind of, you know, what got you into uh, nerdom in general? Uh, I have been a a certifiable nerd uh, really since I was six years old. Okay. uh, my dad actually got me into playing video games. I played on the original Nintendo and the Turbo Graphics and all these, you know, old school systems. Yeah, uh, and that was like our bonding time, and and that got me into gaming early. Uh, and then he introduced me to comic books and you know Lord of the Rings and all these very nerdy uh, staples to uh, to give me a proper education. Yeah, from a young age. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, so that's that's cool though. You know, it's it's nice when it's fostered in the home, of course. Um, you know, I don't know where you grew up, but like what was that like in terms of being in school? You know, was that still something? We're about the same age, but like where you grew up, was that something that, you know, um nerdum was like something that people picked on you for or anything like that? It was. It was. I uh, I felt very ostracized uh, when I was a young person. Uh, but ironically, even though it it became a target that people could use to bully me when I was younger, it also became this sort of safe port, this haven that yeah. I could escape from all of that, and ultimately led me to find the group of friends that I've remained friends with for over 20 years that it's it's my tribe that I found and I found that through nerdiness and gaming and all that stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. I think, uh, you know, that's, it's so important to, to do that. And um, it's true. I mean, you know, part of nerddom and part of tabletop is kind of that found family. Um, you know what I mean? And, and finding those people that are uh, of similar interest and, um, you know, happy to just be around and talk about that stuff, you know, those big uh, influences in our life. So um, you mentioned some of the early games, but like what was, what were some of the other early influences for you in terms of, of those kind of things? 
Um, so my my earliest tabletop game uh, was actually advanced D&D. It was uh, the copy of the game that was uh, bequeathed to me that I, I started learning to play on. Yeah. Uh, the first tabletop game that I purchased for myself was third edition okay. D&D. Um, and then also the, uh, the World of Darkness games uh, were the first non-D&D tabletop games that I, I played. And, and they still uh, are very important to me. I actually have the, uh, the Sigil of the Blood Talons tattooed on my chest because of the influence that game line had on my life. So Nice. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> so when you, um, you know, when you started playing D&D, like how long did it take for you be- before you became like a DM and stuff like that? Uh, I actually started as the DM okay. uh, because at the time I was like 12 years old when yeah. I started running games and it was something that I discovered because the game was handed down to me and then onboarded my, my group of nerdy friends at the time who had never played tabletop role-playing games. We played Magic the Gathering together and a bunch of video games and whatnot. You yeah. know, Pokemon was all the hype, all the rage at the time. Yeah. Um, but I introduced them to D and D and tabletop gaming and it became a, a rapid obsession for all of us. Um, That's awesome. So did you just, um, you know, did it take you a kind of a long time to get into like the world building aspect of it? Or did you just kind of use like adventure paths or, you know, whatever they had back then, I guess. No, I actually jumped right into world building. So from the time I was very young, before I even had any inkling of, of what tabletop role playing was, just on my own, I used to draw fantasy maps just oh, yeah. of my own creation as a kid. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was, I didn't realize what it was at the time, but it was my first steps towards world building and, and story crafting that eventually um, served me as I started DMing and, and building out and fleshing out those uh, settings. Yeah. So I homebrewed from a very, very early on in my DMing career. How many players did you have in those first sessions, those first adventuring parties? Uh, the first adventuring party was a group of five. But uh, as I moved into high school and college, I didn't want to exclude anyone, which often led to my games starting to run in excess of 10 to 12 people yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I sort of developed a reputation as running these unwieldy groups. Yeah. So much so that we often used to break them into two and have them sort of run through dungeons in tandem, tackling different floors. Gotcha. Um, but uh, I've run groups of all sizes, but my first group was a five-person group. Five, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. You know, I think it's really cool to just to kind of see that development and obviously, obviously it puts you in a place where you now are doing something that you really love, um, which is fantastic. Um, you know, when did you uh, start playing the World of Darkness games? Uh, that was in high school. I started playing those okay. games and, and Werewolf quickly became my my favorite. Yeah. Um, it was also one of the few games I got to play in because, like I said, I really started yeah. my exploration of tabletops as a DM, and that was the first game that someone volunteered to run and I got to play in. So yeah. that holds a special place in my heart because it was really my first player experience. Well, for yeah, for so many of us, like once you start DMing, you just don't stop because then people <laughs> know, like, well, you can run the game. So sure, know, ha- hashtag forever DM. Yeah, yeah, certainly. <laughs> um, so with the werewolf game. Um, you know, like, how did you get introduced? Like, where somebody introduced you to the game, they brought you in? Is that how that worked? Or Yeah. So so one of the guys that was one of my regular D&D players had previously, uh, his stepbrother had uh, been storyteller for their game of okay. Werewolf the Apocalypse. Yeah. So I actually got to play Apocalypse first. And when we got kind of into it, we did some exploration. And at that point, the New World of Darkness was just starting to make its run. Okay. And so we ended up getting into Werewolf the Forsaken, and I loved, loved Werewolf the Forsaken. So I, I picked that up and I ran with it. And what's interesting, part of part of this journey as I've now moved into developing my own tabletop game is I've gotten to connect with some of the veterans in the industry, which actually led me to form a friendship with Chris Allen, who is the lead writer of Second Edition Werewolf the Forsaken. That's awesome. Which led you know, this conversation Chris and I ended up having that resulted in him running a game for me, <laughs> the guy who introduced me to World of Darkness and another one of our friends yeah. that we ended up streaming, which is really cool. So now we have it recorded and, and whatever yeah. else, which was great. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. 
I kind of mentioned to before we started recording, but you know, one of the big things um, about what the show is about is you know inclusivity and diversity. Sure. Um, in those early tables, you know, was that something that you guys had naturally, or you know, I. I I don't know where you grew up, like I said, but just, you know, was that something that you were aware of or, or anything like that? At that time, it wasn't something that was really on the forefront of everyone's minds, but a little bit organically, um, primarily we had a couple of girls at the table, which mm-hmm. at that time yeah. was sort of stigmatized that it was still this like boys game, which was weird. Yeah. I'm not sure why that was a thing, but it was a thing at the time. So in that regard, it was kind of inclusive that we did have a number of girls who were regular players in the games. Um, however, now that it is part of the conversation and now that I've been more educated on, on what's happening, um, and actually, my wife is someone who works in that space. She works with the LGBTQ community. Um, she She's a, an educator on uh, STI prevention and awareness and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so now it's become something I'm very passionate about. And we make a point of, as we're designing the game, making sure that it is inclusive, that different groups are represented in the books that everyone feels like they have a place in the game universe. Yeah. Um, And also, you know, I go out of my way wherever possible to include illustrators and other writers and other voices to try to include as much of that as possible. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think it's so important. Um, You know, a lot of, as I've been learning about um, game development, a lot of that does come from freelancers and, um, you know, people who aren't necessarily directly hired by said gaming development company. Um, you know, at the time of this recording, you, there's a lot of stuff going around about Paizo as a company um, and having a lot of issues at the uh, executive level and, and, you know, whatever else. But there are so many freelancers and, you know, game designers and stuff like that that are work that and writers that work for Paizo in that capacity of just, you know, adding to these things that, aren't necessarily a part of that specific culture. And, and, um, you know, so it's, it's amazing that they're out there and that there's the ability to, to go and, you know, retain that talent and add it to the projects that we're doing. So, sure. So yeah, before we get into, to the game, I do want to know, um, because D and D obviously is fantasy. Um, and then the world of darkness games are, are more based in current reality, but still kind of, uh, in that fantastical setting. So what really was the draw, being that Omega Horizon is a sci-fi game, like what was the draw to that to that for you in terms of making a, a TTRPG? Sure. So I I've really um, been a very avid sci-fi fan for most of my life, a fantasy fan also, but I just felt that right now in in this time where we are in this point in time. There's so much going on sociopolitically that I think needs to be examined. Okay. And, and for me, sci-fi has always been this amazing lens through which we can examine modern issues projected into the future in a way that sort of takes some of the vitriol out of it and lets people just look at it objectively. Yeah. You know, you, you think of things like Star Trek, for example, has always been really great at doing that. And even Star Wars, the way they explore hero myths through this this lens. Um, so for me, I, I felt like I needed to weigh in in my own way, in a way that was, you know, true to the future I want to see and, and where we could go wrong and, and sort of those cautionary tales of where, for example, rampant unchecked capitalism gets us and, yeah. you know... Um, the fact that looking ahead into the future, one of the things that I included speaking about inclusivity and things is we have a line in the book that talks about the fact that um, trans rights are human rights and that even the most fascist, unfathomably bad individuals in the future still have arrived at that conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. so like it, it, it looks at that and, and examines, you know, the, the, potential pitfalls we can avoid uh, moving forward. But I I do have additional games in the works. 
Um, okay. My long-term plan is to turn Omega Horizon into a unified sort of rule system yeah. that uh, is universal in how it can be applied with other genres. And so we do have plans long-term for uh, additional games. And the next game that we plan on working on will be a fantasy game. But for right now, given this place and time uh, where we are, I wanted to produce something that I felt was more commentary. Uh, okay. Driven. Yeah, I think that's awesome, and, and it's it's good, you know, when we can use art to kind of express that stuff, um, you know. The, and the the reality of it is is that I think, you know, gaming companies have to realize like you can't avoid it. You know, if you publish something without it, people will wonder why, right, or bring it up or question, you know, why wasn't this included and things like that. So, um, I think it's good to to lead with it head on, and, and of course, you know apply your values in there because it helps people understand exactly what you're doing so sure i, I there's no such thing as an apolitical tabletop role claim role yeah. the, the people who say that are, are in denial or, yeah. or don't or don't like the fact that it's political but it's unavoidable all of these games are political and how much or how little is based on uh how courageous or cowardly the the developers are and actually committing to making commentary but they all make commentary yeah yeah exactly well cool i think it's that's a good segue into like you know what exactly is omega horizon because we did kind of talk around it but you know um for the listeners like how would you i guess describe the game and 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 introduce us to that sure so omega horizon can sometimes be difficult to boil down to a simple thing because it's designed in a way to make it big yeah. So um, there are four main factions, major factions in the game, and each of them plays very differently to give okay. people um, to give people variety. So, for instance, if you're playing uh, as characters in the Centennium Empire, it's a very space marine-y, um, ultra patriotic, almost Starship Troopers esque feel to the game, where you're out there stomping alien bugs and and just yeah. uh you know try it, pushing the manifest destiny of humankind uh whereas if you play in the free colonies it's more of a space western almost like a, a firefly type game um okay. if you play in the yamato empire it's got a very cyberpunk blade runner type feel to it uh and if you play in the vanadium union it's sort of a star trek-esque um game though it's a bit more nuanced so we can get into that if you want but yeah all of these these different factions feel very different if you're setting campaigns in them but they also have these unified themes so the the biggest theme that i try to explore in the game is one of the core questions of what is the real definition of humanity does it just mean homo sapien or or does it have a deeper meaning than that and if it has a deeper meaning than that, where do you draw the line between humans and other sentient species? And where do you draw the line between humans and sentient machines? Yeah. And uh, to give an example of one way that I, I wanted to make that shine through is we avoided a trope that is present in most cyberpunk-esque games, Shadowrun and, and games like that, where they cap how much technology you can incorporate into your body. Yeah. Uh, via some sort of essence trait or, or uh, resource. Yeah. And uh, I didn't do that on purpose because that's that would be burying the lead, right? Like part of the game is about exploring that boundary and if the boundary even exists and if it yeah. does exist when you cross it. So that's one of the main uh, themes in the game that applies no matter what faction you're playing. That's one of these prevalent questions. Awesome. Yeah, I think that is a pretty cool um, theme for sure. And definitely something, you know, as we continue to move forward with technology, like that question is just going to become more and more um, important to ask ourselves, uh, especially with people like, you know, um, Elon Musk, who just <laughs> can, can literally create it tomorrow, probably. Sure, uh, sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, you know, you talked about the four different uh, factions and like playing a campaign in that is there any like kind of overlap in you know if you're playing in this 
type of campaign? Do you still have an overlap, you know, of uh, Western into a cyberpunk type of deal? Sure. So, so depending on the group and, and the game master who's running it, you can either run a very isolated game, you know, space is vast. So you can just remain within one faction's territory if you wanted to, or you could create these sweeping epic, you know, stories that involve multiple factions and the places where those factions intersect which that's another one of the major themes of the game is the um reconciliation between the individual and the collective does your character buy in drink the kool-aid and buy into the major factions dogma are they in direct opposition are they sort of rebels who are fighting against that um one way or the other however they feel about their own faction how do they feel about the other factions how are those factions all brushing up against each other? And, and what are the consequences of, of those areas where they mix or where they don't mix and, and come up against each other violently? And so all of that exists to be mined by the individual group and everyone will tell their own stories about how, you know, the different groups come together and how different people come together. But one of the interesting things about the game is that it is... It runs a bit counter to to typical cyberpunk, space punk sort of settings where, though there is a tinge of um, dystopian rhythm to it, mm-hmm. there's also this underlying theme of hope and mm-hmm. of uh, – it explores something that I think is very um, poignant to right now, which is individual people can be good – but mobs of people can be very, very bad, regardless of what story they're they're selling. Yeah. Um, and so, the hope lies in the individual groups and the, the crews of players and in some of the people they meet on the the small scale is where that hope shines through. One of the commentaries that we're making is sort of every group, if it gets large enough, even if their core values claim to be good they fall prey to the cracks between where things get lost. So the, the example I gave, as I said, if you played in the Vanadium Union, it's almost Star Trek-esque. The Vanadium Union is a an alien-dominated faction that has Starfleet-esque principles, okay. but are too rigid in the application of those principles, which actually leads to an oppressive atmosphere. So, okay. so one of their rules is that any species that joins is given a voice on their ruling council so long as they meet 1% of the total population of the union, which for the first 12 to 14 species that joined was fairly easy to do, but now is yeah. nearly impossible, which means essentially no one else who joins gets a voice. And they go, yeah. well, it's fair. It was an arbitrary thing we chose. Well, yes, in theory, but now taken to an extreme, what you have is tyranny. So those sort of themes uh, are included. Awesome. Yeah, I think it it seems very, very cool and uh, and very interesting. And and I I was curious, you know, just from looking at it, it seems like there is, um, you know, kind of like you're saying, like themes of, of, you know, independence and free will and then themes of colonialism and themes of uh, imperialism. Um, And so, you know, is it kind of like a – do you, do you feel like the factions dictate that or is it kind of like you're saying, like, depending on where you play, you can kind of just go whatever direction you feel? Um, both. So okay. I, I think it is this, um, you can't separate that from the game. The, the fact yeah. that the free colonies even exist is a story of colonialism and what happens when large factions don't, tend to those colonies and they ultimately rebel and the consequences of that. Mm -hmm. But if, if players don't want to, if GMs and players don't want to make that the focus of the campaign, there's a lot you can do around all of that where it's not central to the game and the story, but I don't think you can uh, dispose of it entirely. Um, But certainly if you want to make that the focal point of the story, there's a lot there to do that with and to keep exploring the rippling effects of those early choices of the empires as they expanded and the people who were essentially trampled under the the wheels of progress that have found their voices and, and have decided to take back their power 
and uh, also to explore what happens in those power vacuums when those unifying forces, though unfair and though cruel, are removed, how are those power vacuums filled? And sometimes it's by benevolent forces, and sometimes it's just by predatory forces looking to take advantage of newly emancipated people. Yeah. Um, so there's there's a lot to do there. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to talk like in terms of, you know, player, player specific development, but I am curious, you know, from a uh, GM standpoint, when it comes to, to these worlds, like are, I assume there are, but are there tools and stuff that help them like understand like, you know, this system has so many planets and this is how you run a power vacuum and this is how you, you know, run an uprising, you know, and stuff like that. Absolutely. So we do have a planetary atlas that fleshes out a number of worlds. Um, we're working out whether or not we're going to include hard and fast rules of like generating random planets or not in the core rule book, or if that's going to be something that comes out in the first planned supplement book. Yeah. Uh, because we are planning supplement books. Mm -hmm. But um, certainly we're creating a lot of, of example star systems and planets and some of those planets we chose to include specifically because of their importance to the story relative to what happens with power vacuums and some examples where it works out for the people who have won their freedom and some cases where it didn't. And the thing that filled that power vacuum was worse. Yeah. Um, but we've also created minor factions that exist within the umbrellas of the major factions that specifically are geared towards telling certain stories like that. So for instance, there's a group in the free colonies called the free colony or FC marshals. And okay. they're essentially an, they're an unaligned group who have taken it upon themselves to create order in the aftermath of a free colony, earning their independence from a major faction where they come in. If these planets, you know, if that power vacuum is filled by, pirates and tyrants and warlords, the FC marshals come in to create a temporary rule of law that is more fair and just until proper leadership can be chosen. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. And so when we talk about the players, because I, I think obviously that's, you know, where most people's focus is going to be, um, you always have more players than you have GMs, sure. of course. Um, you know, what does that look like on the player side? Um, so one of the core philosophies of the game is in customization. Uh, it's something that is obvious very early in character creation because we specifically included rules to make your own careers. If you don't find a career that really resonates with you, uh, and to create your own backgrounds and all that sort of stuff. So okay. we created numerous minor factions within the major factions to give people ideas to get things started, whether they want to actually pick one of these minor factions to belong to as a way of sort of guiding that story or to mm -hmm. just inspire them with some of the things they can be doing as individuals. If they want to start to exert their own control on the universe around them uh, for good or ill. But Ultimately, it was very important to me when designing this game that people really felt like whatever idea they had in their head, whether it's, you know, this daring smuggler or um, witty hacker or whatever they want to make, that they can dive into this book and make exactly what they're thinking rather than having to settle for the closest thing. Yeah. So that's 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 really, I think... I don't know if that answers your question, but that, that's no, yeah, where I definitely. Yeah. So I, I, you know, I would like to kind of dig into that. So, um, you know, I, I, I go back to Pathfinder 2E a lot because it's, you know, one of my favorite games. Um, and in terms of customization, there's so many different, like, you know, you have your, your, uh, ancestry, then you have your class, then you have your, uh, general skills and your, um, oh God, what's the other one? I can't remember the other one. But anyway, so there's a lot of options as you level up that allow you to, you know, really mold your character. Um, and it sounds like you, you you just talked about, like, being able to make the character you want. So, you know, what are some of those systems that you guys are using, um, you know, to allow some of that stuff, if, if you're able to talk about sure. it? Sure. So, so one of the things that we're doing is rather than locking people into a rigid class system, we have a levelless game. 
So instead okay. of hitting certain benchmarks as you earn experience and then unlocking predetermined abilities, yeah. you very similar to the World of Darkness games uh, and other point build games, mm-hmm. as you earn experience, which we call character points or CP, you yeah. can then spend those CP to either increase your traits, uh, increase your skills, or purchase advantages and, and other things like that. So okay. one of the things that does is your career gives you a unique ability um, that resonates with that career, that gives you an edge with whatever it is that that type of career does. Again, if yeah. it's a hacker, then you're getting bonuses with computers or an engineer gets bonuses to repairing things, things like that. But you're not locked into any of that. So if you make, for example, a hacker character who's not very physical at all, but you find in the game that you're constantly having to tackle athletic challenges and do things like that, then you just take some of that CPU earned and you start investing into your athletics. And that's okay. fine. So now you go from being this sort of wiry, mousy hacker character to a more fit, intelligent character who's great with computers, but also, you know, has some strength now and some agility. And yeah. whatnot. Um, so you're not locked into anything. You can really grow. And that's one of my favorite parts of role playing is, is character growth. It's not necessarily who they start session one as, but it's who yeah. they are by session 20 that the journey there is so much more important to me as a player yeah. in a GM. Yeah. So this system allows a more organic way of characters growing in whatever direction the story takes them and being competent at whatever they're coming up against. Awesome. So in terms of like, you know, the challenge scaling and things like that, um, you know, obviously an easy baseline for people who play D and D and Pathfinder is like, well, this is a CR 12 or whatever. And I'm a level 12 character and my, that's what my party is. So we can take this on, um, with, you know, in this type of levelless game, like how do you, um, you know, manage and counter balance and things like that. So we do have a sort of a challenge rating system that gives okay. a general idea of um, how many players might be required to challenge or how many characters, because they may have NPC mm-hmm. allies, may be required to challenge certain things or whether certain vehicles may be required to tackle those challenges. Yeah. But what I will say is, Another design core philosophy I had when designing Omega Horizon is that I wanted characters to feel very strong out the gate. So there's sort of this um, meme around the internet of like what I think my character is versus my character at level one, right? Yeah. I, I I didn't want that. I wanted people to feel you're playing heroes or villains, but you're playing exemplary characters in the story that's being told. So you should feel exemplary from the get-go. And um, so the rules for building non-player characters with player characters favors player characters at creation. Um, And there's a lot of discourse through the book about that, how to make your players still feel strong, even when they are being challenged. Um, So that is definitely core to the game is, you're going to, or should at least feel heroic from session one. You should feel heroic, whatever you're good at. You should feel really good at it. You should succeed most of the time. Uh, The game should definitely be in your favor. That's not to say there won't be challenges, but certainly you should never feel like you're just woefully unequipped to handle a situation. Yeah. Have have you personally played games that have done that for you? obviously outside of uh yeah so uh to go back to uh there's there's a bunch of games i've i've played um this bookshelf behind me is just full of dozens and dozens of tabletop role-playing games um but there are two games that come to mind the first we talked a little bit about which was the uh chronicles of darkness now it was world of darkness but chronicles of darkness games where certainly there's a power curve and certainly there are big scary things that you don't really stand a chance against. But because of the way the explosion system works with those dice and whatnot, newly rolled characters can still potentially be lethal to very strong things. And that sense of lethality is omnipresent. And therefore there's a borderline level of you feeling strong because you know that you still are dangerous to things regardless yeah. of the, the scaling. 
The other one is actually uh, Modifius, the Star Trek Adventures game line. Okay. Um, they have an interesting system. I prefer more character progression than they include. Yeah. But their design philosophy is like, well, if you think about the show, like people don't change dramatically from season one to season seven. Like they're already the best of the best. Right. And so similarly, when you make characters in Star Trek Adventures, you don't really level up or have drastic increases in your skills. You're already the best of the best throughout. So you can yeah. shift things around a little bit, but there's not really a power curve. It's it's pretty, pretty flat line that no, from the beginning, you guys are great. Yeah. So, and it's interesting. It it it's there's pros and cons to it. That's why I did include a progression system in Omega Horizon. I like that feeling of earning power yeah. increase. For sure. But there's something to be said about like, all right, I know coming into this, I'm already a pro, and now I can just sort of focus on solving problems and and focus on the story because I'm not crunching, you know, experience in the background, wondering when I'm going to unlock that extra attack or whatever I'm doing. <laughs> Yeah. Have have you played um Delta Green or Call of Cthulhu? I played Call of Cthulhu. Okay. Yeah, I think it does something similar. I haven't played um Call of Cthulhu and I, I looked a lot into Delta Green, haven't had a chance to play yet, but I really want to. Um but they use the same, you know, D one hundred system and uh uh and you're just these basic humans for the most part, unless you're playing there's some kind of Call of Cthulhu that lets you do weird shit, but, right. um, but yeah, so, um, you know, I, I've always liked the idea though of like, you know, having to use skills or different ways of, of solving problems outside of just attack it with a sword or whatever, sure. um, which is still fun. I obviously still very much love that, but, you know, having, you know, using environmental stuff or figuring out a way to like trick said opponent or whatever it is, um, you know. I think that adds something special to to the role-playing game. Absolutely. And Omega Horizon is very skill-focused. So even our attack rolls are technically just a skill. Yeah. Um, and we encourage, and it's again written into the book, that if players can come up with clever applications of skills, within reason, the GM should allow it. If someone thinks that they can tackle an athletic challenge using engineering and technology yeah let them as long as it's feasible and there's logic and reasoning behind it then great i mean that's part of the joy of playing a tabletop role-playing game versus just a video game is that you're not locked into single pointed solutions for things that you can manipulate your environment you can change the, the uh, terms of engagement uh yeah by doing that so we we very much endorse that and, and try to include it and codify it as much as possible in the game that yeah get creative yeah and so i saw in the um you know in the kind of introduction to omega horizon video um a bunch of d6s so um just for you know everybody out there like is this a dice pool system or is you do you take the numbers based on how many d6s you roll uh, so we call it a, it's a roll and keep system, which we're not the only ones to do a roll and keep system, but we've done it in a way that I think is unique. Um, but for example, Legend of the Five Rings uh, is a roll and keep system. Okay. Um, so what happens is your skill groups, and I'll talk a little more about that. We have what we call a nested skill system, uh, okay. but your skill groups determine how many dice you roll. And then based on what you're trying to do, uh, an associated trait, let's say, for example, strength or agility, will determine how many of those dice you get to keep. Yeah. You add your kept dice together, uh, and that sum becomes your result, which is then modified by any specialty ranks and or equipment bonus and or environmental modifiers that may exist. So as a specific example, athletics is a skill group within mm -hmm. which is contained numerous skills, balance, climb, jump, swim, etc., um, so let's say you wanted to make a climb check that's under your athletic skill group. So let's say you have five in athletics. That means you roll five dice, six sided okay. dice. Yeah. Uh, climb is a strength based skill. So out of that five, if you have four strength, you get to keep four of the five. Okay. You add those together. And then if you have any specific specialty points in climb, that becomes a flat modifier that's added on to your roll result, which is then compared to the target number to see if you succeed or fail. Okay. 
Yeah. So, um, so, so it is quite a lot, but I did see also, you know, for people who aren't, who heard all of that and said, <laughs> well, shit, that's a lot of adding and, you know, numbers and things to keep track of. You guys have also created a cinematic mode, correct? Yes. So for people who don't like number crunching and like simpler games, uh, we f- came up with a solution where you can actually start to pare the game down step by step by saying, all right, well, I like the dice, but I don't like modifiers. Chop the modifiers off. The game is still balanced as long as you do it universally. All right. Mm -hmm. Well, I still don't like rolling dice that often. Fine. What you can do is you can literally boil all of combat down to a single dice roll, which tells you which side comes out on top. And then you can just get narrative and describe how you're winning or how you're losing gracefully, whatever the case may be. Um, but the, the great thing about it, cause again, I, I told you I played with pretty large groups and yeah. aside from the fact that it's like herding cats, the really hard thing about playing with a, a big group is that you have so many different voices and so many different preferences that yes. very often we came to a situation where half the group wanted to play a really rules light narrative game and half the group were max manners who just were like, give me every modifier you can. I want to sit here and do calculus to figure out how I win. Um, So Omega Horizon, without having to run it as if it's a separate game, you just make your character one way, and then you can shift between rules light or cinematic and rules heavy um, seamlessly. And so an example I give in the book is if you're running, uh, not everyone meets every week, right? Some people meet once a month, which means it's very hard if your group suddenly has a bar brawl and now you've killed the entire session by just people smashing chairs over each other, and you haven't touched the story at all. So that would be a perfect time where if something happens and the story starts to drift a little from where you want it to be, you quickly shift to narrative play. You resolve it in five, ten minutes. You roll, the player's great. One roll, the players win. Now just describe to me how you're winning this bar fight. Everyone has a good laugh about it. Um, Yeah they get to feel like they take the reins and they take control from the GM a little bit that they Mm -hmm. really just get to describe how things happen. And then the story gets put back on track and you can shift to a more rules, moderate or rules, heavy play. And for the, the boss battles, the big, bad, evil guys, if you will, um, that's a perfect opportunity to really dig into the nitty gritty complexity of the rules and make it feel like every turn matters and that the fight drags out a little bit even though it's taking place over probably 30 seconds it feels like it's longer and every punch matters um and so you can shift between that okay yeah i think that's uh that's really cool and you know in terms of the combat and stuff like is it all you know what kind of weapons uh are we looking at a uh, really wide variety. Um, there are projectile weapons, there are energy-based weapons and plasma weapons and electric weapons and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the weapons have their own dice pools, which means they don't balloon into infinity. You know, you don't have this uh, issue of like a level 20 character, if you will, just bombing yeah. everything they come across. Um, because even though your attacks are a skill-based thing, which means eventually if you keep focusing on it, you'll get to a point where you almost never miss, but yeah. the damage is still weapon-based. So that is capped at a reasonable level, which allows balance to be maintained through the game where you never should realistically get to a point where things don't feel challenging. Your health pools okay. will never balloon. Enemy health pools will never balloon. So damage will be relatively consistent. The thing that will change is your success rate will increase over yeah. time. So yeah, I see what you're saying. So you you become better at at fighting, um, which in turn makes you obviously more lethal. But there's still lethality there. Correct. Correct. When you're still fighting big things, they're still very dangerous to you because even though you hit those attacks when you should, realistically, if a target's big enough, you won't miss anyway. So that never changes. That always remains a challenge at the top levels. Yeah. For sure. Well, very cool. And um, the other thing you do with with Paleo Gaming is esports, yes. right? Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about that. How did that start and, and what are you guys doing with that? Uh, yeah. So it's kind of funny because both when we got into esports and when we got into tabletops, <laughs> it actually started with my, uh, my father-in-law, of all people, just asking a very innocent question. So um, – for, for a brief time, my wife and I lived with my in-laws uh, 
right before we got married. And uh, <laughs> I was playing Eve online one day and my father-in-law mm-hmm. walked in and was like, oh, what are you doing there? You spend a lot of time on this game. I was like, yeah. yeah. And he's an entrepreneur. And his first thing is like, can you make money doing this? And immediately I was like, no, 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 yeah. no, no. But then a year later, uh, some friends and I were playing League of Legends, uh, and we decided we wanted to try to get a little more competitive in it. Um, and so we, we started laughing and talking about how we were going to get like a team logo, or whatever else. And at the back of my mind, my father-in-law's words started to gnaw at me of like, can you make any money doing this? And I said, yeah. you know, if I'm going to spend some money on a designer to get a logo and get some stream stuff maybe I should look into just incorporating a business and see if I can actually do this. And so long story short, within six months, we had formed a company. Um, We were competing, but then other people started coming to me and saying, Hey, I love the logo. Can we do a team under your logo? And so then we brought in our first couple teams and they started competing under the paleo gaming banner. And then that turned into us hosting events so yeah. we hosted events for a couple of years, um, and that was all going well and doing great, and we started developing developing a bit of a fan base. Uh, and then, again, I was playing a tabletop game, and my father-in-law walked in, and after he said, what are you doing? <laughs> and I explained what we were doing. His next thing was, well, can you make any money off of this? And so, again, yeah. I dismissed him out, out of hand. And, went, and then a year later, it started gnawing at me, and I said, you know, I've been homebrewing things for almost 20 years now, Um, I wonder if anyone would be interested in the games I'm homebrewing and maybe there's a market here. And sure enough, we we recently with our successful Kickstarter campaign found, yes, that is in fact the case. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah. So, um, with that Kickstarter, cause that just happened recently. Um, you know, it sounds like it was a successful thing. So yes, uh, we, we set our initial funding goal at $1,000, uh, and we ended up raising 14,000, almost 14,500. Awesome. So yeah. we blew our goal out of the water. We hit all but one stretch goal. Um, and obviously we're very grateful for, for everything that we were given, which is really going to allow us to pull out the stops and illustrate the book, you know, to the nines. But, um, more importantly for me was two things. One, we had 226 backers, which for someone uh, myself who's never published a game before, you know, is, is basically un, untried in the tabletop yeah. world was humbling for me. And two, the people who are backing are not backing wishy-washy because they're bored. All of them have been uh, very enthusiastic about the game, uh, very outspoken about how they feel like it will fill a place on their bookshelf that needs to be filled. Um, And that's the real reason I'm doing this because of how important tabletop gaming has been in my life and Mm -hmm. for my friends. Um, You know, you play long enough, you see the things you like and the things you don't. And there are, I'm not going to disparage any other game because all, all the games on this bookshelf and many, many more all do wonderful things. Um, but there's also things that as we've played, we've said, I wish I could do X yeah. or I wish I could do Y. And so we really set out to create a game that is not perfect because there is no perfect game, but for us filled a lot of those gaps that we wished had been filled as we've played games over the years. Um, and things, for example, like the sliding scale of complexity for a group that has this, this big divide between the two groups. Omega Horizon has been a game that has been really well received in my own group because the people who like more narrative play get to just do these cinematic scenes where they feel strong and get to move the story along. And the people who like min-maxing look forward to that, um, you know, penultimate fight against the the bad guys that they get to really dig in and show off how they've read everything and they know how to utilize every trick shot in the book. Um, So things like that if I can do that for even a handful of people, then, then this has been a wild success in my eyes because that's the real reason we're doing it. Yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's awesome. And you know, it is, you know, obviously a scary thing. I mean, I think there's so many people out there who, who were like you, who, you know, thought about it, who homebrew a bunch of stuff and just haven't done the thing yet. Right. And, um, and putting yourself out there and, and really going to get it, um, is the scary thing to do, but you know, it's, I think it's important to, to try it and 
you know, obviously have a good plan and, you know, a good product and everything else, of course. But, you know, I think it's, it's important to pursue those things, especially in a time now, like we look at, you know, how the world has changed so much over the past year and a half with COVID and everything else. Like people really retreated into these games and, uh, and it, and into this space. And, you know, if you look at how many actual play podcasts came, came out yeah, last year and, um, you know, and streams and everything else. And, uh, you know, people are finding different ways to, to entertain themselves. And I think TTRPGs are a big part of that. So huge. It's very cool. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and look, I mean, the biggest thing, if you want to put your stuff out there, the biggest thing is try not to, and I know it's scary, but try not to be afraid of failure we had an unsuccessful Kickstarter campaign before we had our successful one. I learned yeah. very valuable lessons from that process. The whole process of designing games has been a learning curve that I've had to, you know, the first couple people you talk to, you may embarrass yourself, you may trip up, you may miss some opportunities, but you learn the vernacular, you learn the rules of engagement in that space. Yeah. And then the next one, the next one, the next one, suddenly things change and you come from a position of, you know, um, of weakness, not really knowing what you're getting into to a position of strength where you know how the industry works now and you know how to onboard illustrators and you know how to onboard writers and editors and layout designers and all that stuff. But I didn't know any of that, any of that going into this. My, my background, I'm a hydrogeologist. That's that's my day job. I moonlight yeah. as a game designer, but my day job is I play in the dirt all day, and yeah. uh, and and you know fuel oil contaminated water. And so coming into this, I didn't know any of this. I had no idea what an illustration contract looked like. I had no idea what things cost. I had to learn. And and yeah. the first couple that you sign up, I I got bad deals because I didn't know what I was doing, and I got kind of fleeced. But then you start to see the patterns and, and where you have, you know, strength to negotiate and where you shouldn't negotiate, you know, the, yeah. the value, learning the value of, uh, you get what you pay for and, yeah. and paying people what they're worth and, and all that. And, uh, and eventually you, you get it down. Yeah. I, I guess, um, you know, because th- these are obviously valuable lessons. Um, if there's something that you could teach people that, um, you know, who, who are looking to do that in the future? Like, you know, where do you, where did you find some of these things? Was it just trial by error and, and all of those things? Or was it some, you know, did you get like specific advice or anything like that? Uh, eventually I got advice. So it started out trial by error. You have to, um, unfortunately, but it makes sense. You have to prove your persistence early. So yeah. Don't be surprised when you get turned down at first, when people aren't taking you seriously because, yeah, you're just another person who's trying to put together, a you know, on a cheap dime, whatever they want to put together. And people don't want to attach their name to that because they're just not sure how it's going to be. So what happens is at first you're going to probably overpay for things. You're going to get things that maybe aren't the best quality, but it's going to give you something. It's going to start to give you something that looks like a thing that then you can take to other artists and say, Hey, this is like really rough stuff. I have that is what I want. Here's how I want it changed. You've at this point learned some of that language and you know how to navigate some of these contract questions that come up to the point where, when you now interact with these people, they're like, all right, this person knows what they're talking about. Yeah. They don't have much now, but they have a baseline. I feel like I can work with this person. And then as they start, now you're starting to, to get more, precision work now you're starting to get shinier better work now when you you go to the bigger names and whatnot you have something that looks real and they go okay this person's serious they've obviously invested some time time money uh they've spent time learning about this they're serious enough that i feel like i can um come on board and that's how you also have to think about it is in some degree it's a partnership, right? Even though it's your company and it's your game or whatever else, the people that you bring on are, are putting their blood, sweat and tears into this and it becomes part of their portfolio also. So you have to treat them to some degree like partners and involve them in the creative process and don't make them feel like you're just buying them out and therefore you own them and therefore they should give you exactly what you're asking for. It should be collaborative it should be creative and, and some of the best art that we've gotten for mega horizon 
um, has come from that collaboration. And it also influences the, the natural evolution of the game where I'll come up with a certain idea for something, but in workshopping it with the illustrator, the ultimate piece inspires me to change it a little bit and to, yeah. to refine it a little bit to something different. And I think it makes your worlds feel more lived in when you have more voices. And especially as to, to bring it back to something we talked about first, when it comes to um, being inclusive, if every voice is strictly yours or if every voice is strictly people like you, it leads mm-hmm. to very one-dimensional games and very one-dimensional worlds by bringing in these other voices and letting them all weigh in and letting them all um, play in your sandbox. It creates a very organic, real-feeling world. For a fantasy yeah. world, we all know the difference between a world that feels fabricated and a world yeah. that feels very real and lived in. Um, so I strongly recommend if, if you're looking around the, the proverbial room, whether it's digital because of COVID or whether it's in person yeah. and everyone looks like you, you should reevaluate where you're pulling uh, voices from and you should definitely try to expand that pool. Yeah. And I, you know, uh, I, I am curious, like specifically, you know, when it came to that for, for you, was that, you know, in the writing and the editing and the art, like where, you know, how did you, um, work that into, into your project? All, all of the above from, from basic okay. early design, uh, illustrations, cause all of that comes through, right. Obviously the writing matters also. Um, yeah. and for me, I, I have done the lion's share of the of the writing, mm-hmm. but I already have people that are um, on retainer when the time comes for editing and not just copy editing, but content editing, going through, looking at, for example, different cultures and seeing whether they are complementary or sort of um, caricatures problematic. and problematic, right? That's very important to me because for me, as I include, for example, let's say Asian influenced cultures in the game because of how the history, because it was set, this is an alternate future, uh, if you will, of our uh, galaxy. So yeah. Earth's cultures eventually translate into these future cultures. Um, I may think, I, I'm certainly coming from a place of admiration uh, with any culture that I'm portraying, but yeah. what I may think is flattering may actually be problematic. Yeah. Um, and it's not for me to decide. It's for someone who um, is of that background or is, yeah. is more educated than I am, at least on that background and can weigh in. Um, and so that's been on the forefront of my mind through development and, and something that I'm willing to invest in to make sure that, uh, that we do that correctly. Yeah, that's awesome. And I, and I do think it's so important and, you know, you can see, um, where that's worked in the games that are out now and, and where, uh, obviously the opposite hasn't worked, um, so much. And, um, you know, a great example of that is the into the motherlands, um, which is a, a game that's in development now too. Um, but is an all POC, but it's also, different POCs and and even though it is you know an Afrofuturist game it's they have you know people from a bunch of different descents and and different orientations and different genders and so there's um so many things uh, that when you have that diverse group of people they're able to catch like you said and you know having um you know sensitivity consultants and things like that like it's it's so important to to make sure you're you're doing the right things and 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 you know coming at it from admiration but also showing that through your work and not just, well, that's how I felt. Like you said, yeah, sure. It's so important to understand like other people's perception of what you have done is, is vastly important. Um, and it's not just your opinion that matters. Sure. Especially because death of the author is, is a very real thing. And and you should aspire to it. I think if you ever want your game or book or, or movie or whatever you're doing to outlive you and to resonate and to, to be a, a worthwhile legacy to leave, then you need to understand that it doesn't matter what your intentions were because to some degree it stops being yours in some way the second it, it starts to be distributed. And therefore yeah. you need to be thinking about how it's being received, not how it was intended. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Well, I, that that's very awesome. And I think that's a really good note to, to kind of end on there. So um, thank you so much for coming on and, and, you know, talking about your game and everything you're working on. I think this is going to be a really cool, um, fun project and I'm excited to see it come out. Thanks so much for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. If you would like to reach out to us, check out the many options on the Anchor app or anchor.fm on your browser. You can also reach us at secretnerdpodcast at gmail.com. Make sure to subscribe to the show. And if you'd like, leave a review to help us grow this thing. Until next time.